Monty. We missed you, but we're glad you have a good a good job now, and you don't have to wake up early. It's Seeger and Sarah. We're super excited that you and Khalees have this new show. We did have a couple of ideas for things to feature. Trees? Seeger likes that we have lots of trees in this area. And then two ideas I had were maybe to feature the parlor room becoming a nonprofit and just all the fabulous music and collaboration that happens around here. The other thing is the craft department in Amherst. Um, It's the first alternative to policing program in the Commonwealth. So community responders for equity, safety, and service. Um, They're really just doing some incredible and cutting edge work. Anyways, we are so excited that you're back on the airwaves and um, we look forward to hearing more from the two of you. Well, thank you, Seeger and Sarah. Those are great ideas about what to talk about here on the Fabulous 413. And we will get to trees and crests and all that stuff. Especially as spring comes around. Yes. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. We'll dip into our mailbag later in the show. You can email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text anytime, anytime, 1-800-639-9120. Coming up, local hero musicians Glad Machine with their CD released at the Divine Theater in Holyoke and theater makers Diana O and Daphne Huang Spencer on their hate letter to the great American theater currently showing at Smith College. But first, greetings from New England Public Media. Yeah, hey, it's Jim McGovern. Hey, it's Monty. Hey, how you doing? Oh, so we're back. We're back. We're getting the band back together. (laughs) (laughs) U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern. Shortly after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, listeners of my previous radio show I think we're feeling, many were feeling, that they had been uh, left behind by the federal government. So Congressman McGovern made himself available every week to our listeners on a segment that we called McGoverning with McGovern. And that segment will continue weekly here on Thursdays. And the congressman will take questions from you if you send them in at to the fab 413 at nepm.org, as well as from our NEPM News Department, and as well as uh, from me, Congressman. First off, In the 2010 redistricting, Congressman John Olver retired, and then that is what brought you into this part of uh, Western Massachusetts, into the 413 from where you were previously representing. Congressman Olver passed away late last week. Do you have any thoughts or reflections on the passing of Congressman Olver? Yes, it was a a sad day when I heard that he had passed away. Look, John Olver was, uh, you know, not only a great uh, member of Congress, but more importantly, he was a very good, good man. I mean, he cared uh, deeply about the people he represented. Um, there's not a project, you know, in the western part of the state or even in central Massachusetts because his district went out into central Mass. It doesn't have his fingerprints on it. Incredibly knowledgeable uh, and a man of conviction. I tell people all the time that um, even though he was kind of had a quiet demeanor, um, he wasn't adverse to kind of mixing things up. I'd asked him to join me in a, in a protest against the genocide in Darfur a few years back, and um, and he said, you know, without hesitation that he would come. I said, well, you know, we may get arrested. And uh, he said, well, uh, you know, so what? And he came, and we got arrested. And uh, You were arrested with some other high-profile people as well. Would you care to divulge? Uh, I was. Well, we, we, we got arrested twice. Uh, I was, John Lewis was, uh, was in, in our cell uh, both times. Uh, George Clooney was with us the second time we got arrested, and his dad, Nick Clooney, uh, who's a, uh, a you know who was a, a news anchor, uh, mm. but uh, John uh, had this kind of quirky 
way about him. I remember we were in a cell together, and they when they told us to go into the cell, they said, "I want give me your shoelaces, give me your necktie." And I'm, well, what are you doing that for? He said, "Well, that's this is the standard procedure." I said, "Well, we're just two members of Congress. What, what are we going to do?" And anyway, uh, John Olver and I were in a cell for like about eight hours, and uh, he proceeded to read the graffiti on the wall from floor to the roof, like and went on, out loud. And then when I finally got released, I said to the police officer, thank you for taking my shoelaces out because I probably would have hung myself if I, if I had listened to him read the, the graffiti aloud uh, for a longer period of time. But I, I really enjoyed um, serving with him, and, and uh, we became good friends. And again, it's a loss for not just for, the, for Massachusetts, but for the country. Everything from agricultural preservation. Uh, he was yeah. instrumental in the rehabbing of the Shea Theater, which I'm on the board for in yeah. Turner's Falls. And his, as you mentioned, his fingerprints are all over that. Transportation, yeah. the John W. Oliver yeah. Intermodal Transportation Hub in Greenfield. Uh, he certainly will be missed. That being said, you represent a lot of the district that he previously represented after the previous census. Sam Hudzik uh, from our NEPM News Department, he's the news director, uh, wants to know from you, Congressman. He says, it's now been a couple of months since Republicans took control of the House and you lost your chairmanship of the Rule Committee. Do you feel you've been able to make any impact on that committee now as the ranking Democrat rather than the chair? Let me just say that it's um, it's worse than I thought it would be. Wow. Uh, And I wasn't expecting very much. Uh, the people that they put on the Rules Committee, some of the new people, uh, represent the most far-right fringe of the Republican Party. Uh, these are people who are not interested in building roads or bridges or helping our farmers or helping anybody for that matter. They're interested in getting more Twitter followers, getting a, uh, you know, a segment on Fox News. And uh, they're anti-vaxxers. They're, these are people who still believe that Donald Trump won the election. Um, these are people who... Uh, say the most outrageous things the the tone of the debate in the rules committee um is different and my chairman is a is a wonderful republican named tom cole of uh, oklahoma we have a good relationship but i think even people like him are a little find it jarring to hear some of the the, the stuff that comes out of the mouths of some of these new members it's 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 really quite disappointing there's a lot that we need to do and uh, it's clear that these people are not interested in doing any of that. For those who aren't so we'll familiar with what the Rules Committee actually does, what, what are, what's the role of the Rules Committee and how are these, not the chair, who you said is a Republican now, but is, is right. more uh, sensible, the right. other people, how are they undermining what the Rules Committee is trying to do? Yeah. So the Rules Committee is the traffic cop of Congress. I mean, every bill goes to the House floor, goes to the Rules Committee. We decide, you know, what the text of the bill will ultimately look like. We decide whether amendments can be offered or not and which amendments can be offered. We also set the time on debate. Um, so it sounds like it's process-oriented and all focused on procedure, but it's probably one of the most powerful committees um, in the Congress that no one knows very much about. I mean, it, 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 it has a real big impact on policy. It's actually the oldest uh, committee uh, in the in the House of Representatives. And so, um, you know, part of the deal that Kevin McCarthy had a strike to get to become speaker after like 15 rounds of votes in four days was that uh, th- this group of right-wing people said we we want you to give us a a number of slots on the rules committee because we want to we don't trust you Kevin McCarthy and we want to be able to be a check on you and we can hold legislation up and we can change legislation that we don't like in the rules committee um, and so uh, so we want um, you know a enough seats that we can mess things up if we have to and he gave them that 
Um, so I, we, you know, we have people that just you know ramble on endlessly about conspiracy theories, QAnon. These are people that are very much in the same kind of category as people as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. These are people who really um, shouldn't be in government. Period. I mean, they're not about fixing things or building things or making things better. They're about uh, you know, blowing things up, and I uh, and it's really very very disappointing. We're going to have to find a way to work around them. So it's 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 different, and uh, you know I, I hope it's only for you know the next two years, and then we can have a course correction. But at the end of the day, government has to be about making things better. It has to be about building things and um, and moving this country forward. It can't be about just destroying everything. And these people again don't care about. I, I don't know how they get elected because they don't run on a platform of I'm going to build this bridge or I'm going to you know preserve this land or I'm going to help our farmers or I'm going to do any of that stuff. You know, they just run on riling people up. Anyway, we, we, need, we need to do better and we need to figure out a way to work around them. One of the issues that you care deeply about that we've worked together on uh, locally with the March for the Food Bank is making sure people have enough to eat. You were instrumental in encouraging the White House to convene the first in 50 years uh, conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. Today, is the last pandemic-related food stamp or SNAP payment that was associated with the pandemic. On average, individuals will get about $90 less this month in benefits from SNAP. Some households will see a cut of about $250 a month or more. This SNAP benefit that was pandemic-related was instrumental in helping to fight hunger, as was the child tax credit. Is there any pathway that you see in helping to bolster those SNAP payments, bring those SNAP payments back, apart from the state level, which there are there are things going on in the Commonwealth right. of Massachusetts to help those uh, who would need that in their their coffers every month? Well, as you mentioned, the state uh, the state is actually going to act, and I want to commend Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll and our state legislative delegation because they're going to pass a supplemental appropriations bill that's going to help uh, ease the cliff due to the uh, ending of these uh, pandemic-related food benefits. On the federal level, uh, there's no hope that we can do anything in the House. In fact, we have Republicans who are talking about cutting deeper uh, into the SNAP program. Uh, These people seem to be convinced that the benefit is too generous. And I I always remind people that, you know, with, with all the benefits that were added on because of the pandemic and other things, the SNAP benefit was about $2.49 on average per person per meal. And you can't even some, buy some coffee for that in, in some coffee shops. With, with, with the cut, it goes down to $2 or less. And that's that's hard for people to live on. Um, and inflation is still a reality. Um, you go to the supermarket, food prices are still up. So a lot of a lot of these families that are on SNAP, a lot of these working families, by the way, because the majority of the people who are on SNAP who can work actually do work, they're going to end up going to the food bank. They're going to end up going to food pantries. Um, and food banks and food pantries will be the first to say that this is not a solution. It's a temporary. It's right. a band aid. They're there Absolutely. to help as as much as they can be, but this is not a long term solution. Right. And the the other thing is, um, you know, some people will just go without, uh, and you you'll hear from teachers in the coming weeks that there are kids going to school on Mondays who haven't eaten over the weekend. You're going to hear from doctors in emergency rooms that more and more senior citizens are showing up because they're taking their medication on an empty stomach when they're supposed to take it with a meal uh, and they end up in an emergency room. 
you know, you're going to hear more and more of these stories. They're going to be terrible, terrible, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stories about people in our community who are struggling to put food on the table. And, uh, you know, as we say all the time, we do your march. I mean, you know, food ought to be a fundamental human right in this country. And um, nobody ought to go hungry. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. And yet we have 35 million people who struggle to put food on the table. We just need to do better. And so this White House conference that you were at and that was a, that I, I believe will be transformational put out a national strategy of things that we need to do to end hunger. Some of this stuff can be done by the administration without Congress, and we are urging them to move rapidly. And I'll just give you one example. I personally believe that you know, school meals, breakfast and lunch, ought to be free and universal for everybody. And the state has extended the free universal school meals program for a year. I want, I want the state to make it permanent. California has done that. Maine has done that. Vermont has done that. Colorado has done that. We ought to do that here. And one of the things that we're asking the administration to do, because they could do this on their own, is to expand what we call community eligibility, um, which will allow them to cover more meals with federal money so that more schools can offer it. And we want this, the state to pick up the rest. But those meals and those schools not only are important for kids' health and well-being um, and their overall nutrition, but as my two sisters will tell, tell you, and they're both teachers, that school meal is every bit as important to a child's ability to learn as a textbook or a laptop. And so we need to, again, we need to move quickly on what, the, what is in that national strategy. And again, some of it doesn't need Congress. Some of it is the administration. And we ought to push them to move as rapidly as possible. Nirvani Williams asks uh, Congressman McGovern, she is part of the NEPM News Department here, uh, and she's been working on housing and fair housing and specifically wants to know about Haitian migrants. She asks local resettlement agencies, some located in your districts in Western Mass, are helping many Haitian migrants who escaped political and civil unrest in Haiti, but advocates say that the resources for them are limited. Are you seeing this anywhere in your district? And if so, what are you doing to respond to the needs of these specifically Haitian migrants and the resettlement agencies who are helping them? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I hear that a lot all throughout my district and all throughout the country. The federal monies to help with the resettlement of refugees is inadequate, I mean, period. And we need to get it up, I mean, um, to a point where we can adequately resettle people and make sure that they have enough to put food on the table and they have access to housing. Um, the, si- the situation in Haiti is particularly awful. I mean, we, we we don't read about it as much in the newspapers, but it is brutal what is happening in Haiti. It, it is just total anarchy, um, and um, people are fleeing because they're worried about their, their kids, but Haiti's not the only place. There are people fleeing from Central America and from other countries around the world, um, and we need to be a place where we <laughs> uphold a high standard of human rights that we that we welcome people who are fleeing violence and that we help get them on their feet so they can have a decent life for, for themselves and for their families. Um, but we are trying to, and this is a congressional thing that we need to do, we, we have to, in the next appropriations bill, provide adequate resources to help communities and agencies resettle refugees. But it is a problem, and um, and it's a sad problem. And again, you know, a lot of good organizations, churches, faith-based groups are you know, kind of coming to the aid and trying to fill in the blanks, but, but that's not a long-term solution. Any more than relying on charity is a long-term solution to deal with the hunger crisis in this country. We need to get this right, and we need to make sure that uh, the resources are there. We tried to make a, a difference last year. 
um, in the appropriations bill. We just need to do better. Congressman Jim McGovern is the congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts. He'll join us every Thursday here in the fabulous 413 on NEPM. You can email a question for the congressman anytime at the fab 413 at NEPM.org, or you can text us a question, 800-639-9120, and I will ask it on your behalf next week. Thank you for uh, for coming back on the radio with me, Congressman McGovern. It's, it, it, it's I think it's an important be, segment. It's, it's good to be back with you. I mean, I, I've been kind of lost. <laughs> I don't talk to you on Thursdays. I, I wake up, and I, I, real, and I, I had nobody to talk to. So I'm happy to be back with you, and Congratulations, and uh, I wish you all the success in the world. Thank you. Uh, And we will talk to you next week. I'm glad to be able to fill that Monty-shaped hole in your life. (laughs) All right. All the best. Be safe. Coming up, local hero musicians Glad Machine with their CD release at the Divine Theater in Holyoke, and theater makers Diana O and Daphne Huang Spencer on their hate letter to the Great American Theater, currently showing at Smith College. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. If you rock and roll all night and part of every day, for the part of the day in which you do rock, we present a local power pop quintet performing this very weekend in Holyoke. Brad Thayer, Mike Franklin, Neil Robinson, Greg Solomon, and Tony Pluta come together to make catchy, straightforward music as the Glad Machine. They'll be celebrating their second album, Hey, with a CD release show at the Divine Theater this Saturday, and Khalees Smith crashed a recent rehearsal. So I'm sitting here with the Glad Machine, who have a CD coming out and a CD release show coming up on March 4th. Thanks for taking some time to hang out with me and talk to me about your music and all the things that you do in the Valley. You formed in 2012. Greg Solomon, lead guitarist for Glad Machine. Fall of 2012 was when we started rehearsing more or less. Brad and Mike go way, way back, and Neil and Brad and Mike also go back. Has it been that long? Your bio on your website says yes. So you've been a band for 11 years, over a decade. Congratulations. That's pretty crazy. My back hurts. Your band's back hurts. That's good, though. Like, that is, especially in a a local scene, is really important. So what's kept you together for so long? Yeah, that's a good question. I think probably because we don't play that often. Really, it's helpful because I I think we make a lot of, (laughs) we write a lot, we we make a lot of music together in that way, but I think because we weren't really focused on playing live all that often, because the Northampton scene has kind of fluctuated in where there are actually places to play. During COVID, we we actually didn't even see each other for two years, but we made the record sort of from afar. That was that was an interesting time because we all got to find our own identities as players kind of separately and then do recording and it was it's a different stage before we would kind of work the songs out as a band and that was cool but working on each part individually and recording individual tracks uh, for me personally it allowed me to kind of expand my range as a player so I really appreciated that time. Brad Thayer frontman and singer for the band. Do you think that COVID changed the tone of your current EP from your previous style? I don't, I don't know if musically, if you guys think it, it, I don't think it changed all that much. So we're just based in, you know, whatever music sort of gets us off, like hooky, lots of harmonies. I think we've always kind of sounded like that, but just, I think the subject matter for us during COVID, it was impossible to not have that 
permeate almost every song. And what was interesting too is, you know, the name The Glad Machine came actually out of it. We used to have um, our buddy Rusty, Michael Russell, who was in the band, and he came up with the name. It just seemed like a good name for a happy pop band, but most of the songs in the new EP are really kind of sad tunes, but we ran them through the Glad Machine, which is so cool to think of it that way. We're like, yeah, you know, like these really intense songs, but are just really happy and hopeful and glad. I think it's kind of cool. We, we have an identity now, you guys. And also uh, bringing a new member into the band, Tom really added another dimension to the sound. Having another guitar and another voice really, I think, allowed us to expand the range of what we do, fill in the holes kind of in the live performance versus what we record. That's another thing, I guess, you know, we're, we're in, a, in, in the studio, you can lay, you know, 45 tracks, 45 guitar tracks, and then you come to play it live, you're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> so for me, that's what's the most exciting about playing these shows we have coming up. And the record that we just put out is that we can reproduce on stage what we did in the studio. And that's pretty exciting, I think. Speaking of new members. Uh-oh. Team Money. I know. It's uh, Tommy Pluta. How did you come to be a part of the band? Brad and I have known each other for many, many years. I actually cut, he cuts my hair. <laughs> so, uh, and before that, somebody else cut my hair, but he was in a chair behind me, so I could always hear him talk about music. And eventually we just started, we, we found that we enjoyed a lot of the same music. But I've also known Neil for, for many, many years as well. I'm a huge fan of their music and their, and their, uh, and their records. So the opportunity came up to fill in and be that extra guitar part and vocal because there is a lot of harmonies. It's like, yeah, let's do this. It's been a lot of fun so far for me. Yeah. We're also a big fan of Tom was in an amazing band called The Size, which is a Holyoke-based band, and they got to do a lot of really great... Oh, dear. ...and primarily make it to our ears as well. So it was just a big love fest. You know, Tom walked in already knowing how to do the stuff that we do. There was no learning curve with Team Money. He was, like, there from day one, so that's been pretty awesome. And he'll, and he'll be doing double duty in the, in the summer when we play the, the benefit show at the park. So Speaking of, how is it to get on basically a festival lineup? Because that's a festival lineup. One Roof, <clears throat> Benefit for the Homeless, happening at the Pines Theater this summer with the Gin Blossoms and yeah, Julietta yeah, Hatfield yeah. and a whole bunch of other... And uh, well, another thing that's... It's really interesting for me personally, having worked in the industry on the production end of things, on the club, you know, running clubs and things for so many years to, to kind of come in on the other side of it and see what it's like as a performer and what it's like to, you know, to, to book, you know, to book the shows and do do it from that end. It's been really cool getting Brad's ride together is, is, is always, <laughs> and, always tough. And for everyone out there in Radio Lands, Neil Robinson, bassist for Glad Machine. Which club did you run? The Iron Horse. I'll add that I think these shows coming up, our show at Gateway City on March 4th, and then uh, our show with Jim Blossoms and Toad the Wet Sprocket and others at the Pines Theater in June, are an example of the opportunities 
that abound for local artists around here. So we have local show, smaller room, but still intimate, and we get to play you know, to a packed room to a bunch of our friends, which is going to be a blast. Then a couple months later, we have an opportunity to play with bands I listened to on the radio and saw on MTV in high school. And, you know, when I think about all the places I could live in the world, I don't know that, you know, they exist, but this is one of them where you have those kinds of opportunities as an artist. And that's just makes me love where I live. You've been signed to Big Blast Records. And it is very cool that an older band gets signed, period. What kind of support have they given to you as, as a band for your releases? Yeah, well, yeah. Big Blast is it's more of a community-based label. They're based out of Chicago, and it's started by Mark Watson and Kirk Fox, two just super great guys who are in touch with um, some really great acts in Chicago. And um, he had reached out to us a while ago. He goes, look, we want you to just be part of the family here. You know, what we're going to do is give you support as far as we promote our artists. We're going to promote you as well. You always have a home here in Chicago. We, we get together, and during COVID, we did a lot of, like a live stream, we did a lot of sort of playing with them. So as far as um, support, it's just like-minded folks who um, help each other out. So it's not like a label per se, it's more of a community. And that way it's um, it's pretty cool because we still could do whatever the hell we want. Another thing that's interesting in terms of that kind of thing, the meaning of what a record label is has changed so much over the past 20 years that now doesn't matter as much as it once did to be signed, but it does matter to get your music in front of people that are likely to like it. And the good thing about these kinds of labels and these kinds of opportunities is that it allows the music to be heard all over the world. So we can put something out and we get fans in England, we get fans in Norway, we get fans in California, Mexico, Florida, wherever. And that's exciting to see. That's that's very cool. And also when bands tour, we can kind of do regional swaps where bands will come out from Chicago, might play New York and Boston, and we can play with them in those places. And that's always good. It's good to have alliances. A lot of bands, most bands, if they're touring regionally or even locally, will have other bands that they play with in other cities and other towns. So you, you, you build you build a family, you build a, a, a kind of a web of alliances and you, you tour together and that's how you build build a scene. I'm gonna put you on the spot and have you describe what your sound is for folks who may not be that familiar with you. That's a good question. I'm gonna give that one to money. The sound is the sound of love. If you like Cheap Trick and Posies and a host of other bands, you you might you might like the Glad Machine. I think it sounds like close harmony '80s bands like the Knack with more pop sound, a little bit of jangle pop in there, and a grounding in rock and new wave like like Cheap Trick. That's those are bands that we get mentioned in the same breath with a lot. So that's why how I see it. And what should people expect at your show on the fourth? <laughs> for, for context, everyone's looking right. looking at each other, hoping someone oh else will answer. <laughs> oh 
Oh dear. Well, you can expect our drummer to be there. I feel bad. Mike had to leave. He soon had to drive home. Mike is a oh dear. solid musician across the board, so I think it's worth mentioning that uh, he had so much to do with the production of our record. He spent many hours in the studio. He's just a, he's a monster player, and he's, we love him, and uh, we wish he could be here. And it's also a big part of the sound. I mean, what a lot of the spine of this band is Mike and Brad, who've been friends since high school, and they sing together like, like family. You, you would think that they were related, and, you know, and, and I guess in a sense they are because they, they <laughs> sing like it. Um, and so that's, that's an that's a important part of the sound. We're playing with a, a really great local rock band called Nanny, and you know what I hope for is to just put on one of the shows uh, similar to many, many I've seen over the years here, where it's a fun night of, of rock music and a lot of people who um, know each other and respect each other and look forward to seeing each other all hanging out and rocking out together. Um, I, you know, I would add, we, we talked about the longevity of the band, and I think this area is unique in that there are a lot of bands that hang on for a long time around here, like Spouse and Spanish for Hitchhiking, uh, Gentle Hen, The Fonz. So many bands have been together for more than 10 years, and, you know, through through very different stages of life, this is essentially a, a hobby for, for most of us. It's easy to give that up as you get older and get busy, and to be in a community where you see other people continuing to create cool stuff makes you just like want to keep doing it yourself and stay in it. There's, I think I have this yeah. this area to thank for it sticking with it as, as long as I have. Um, well, there's bands that, that are still playing that have been playing for 50 years. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's 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 <laughs> just the area. You know, there are bands still playing out that formed in the 70s. Yeah. You know, yeah. so and, you know, that's and, just and seeing the area like, that we live in. Yeah, seeing somebody like Ray Mason. So right. Ray Mason or Jim Armenti or, <laughs> or, or any of those Yeah, bands. just seeing people still at it and still having that drive to make music and put on a show is I mean, that's 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 so that's that's the inspiration yeah. absolutely absolutely that's that's part of the community we live in it's gonna be a lot of fun we're excited to play and i think when a band's excited to play it's infectious to the crowd so that's facts come on down you know, it's funny someone once described us as uh, radio ready and it felt like a slight to me like, I, it was kind of said in, in sort of, and around in this community, being radio-ready to me. And uh, you know what? I'm oh dear. down with being radio-ready. <laughs> I mean, we're ready to be radio-ready on March 4th, so, uh, yeah. Right on. Yeah. Catch local heroes Brad Thayer, Mike Franklin, Neil Robinson, Greg Solomon, and Tommy Pluta, otherwise known as the Glad Machine. March 4th this Saturday at the Divine Theater in Holyoke, where they'll be celebrating the release of their second album. Thanks to The Glad Machine for letting us crash their practice. Next, this is not your standard theater performance and that's intentional. We'll speak with Diana O oh and Daphne Huang Spencer about the show My Hate Letter to the Great American Theater, which is currently running at Smith College, and the wonders of making one's own space for their own art. Coming up in the Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. My Hate Letter to the Great American Theater is a recent play by New York City queer icon, contemporary artist, and musician Diana O, oh, who returns to Smith to direct their new play extravaganza that satirizes the Great American Theater. The galas, diversity panels, white leads using humor, a list of things, music, and flamingos. My Hate Letter is a call for evolution crossed with a queer dance club inspired by a kindergarten classroom hiding behind a stage reading. That was a long sentence. There's a before and an after my hate letter to the great American theater, and liberation is on the other side of it. O says they wrote hate letter at first as a joke and then realized it was written out of necessity. Using truth bombs and confetti cannons, my hate letter takes aim at the ignored problematic history and culture of the great American theater. The play shows that artists, producers, and audiences could benefit from a more expansive, inclusive sharing of our collective humanity. O wants the Smith production to be a, quote, bat call to folks of disability, trans folks, queer folks, POC folks, women, and all the people who need a reminder to come gather and get some courage to keep living their lives. We're joined by Diana Oh, the writer and director, and Daphne Huang Spencer, current Smith student and performer in the show. Diana and Daphne, thank you for joining us. Yay! How it works! (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's working! Technology! Technology. We didn't know if the technology was going to work up until that moment, but kudos to the entire engineering staff. Thank you so much for making this this work. We're so glad that you're with us. So, Diana, what factors made you bring this show back to your alma mater? You graduated from Smith in 08, and this is your first collegiate performance of this particular show? Ooh, wow. Ooh, collegiate. What a fancy word. <laughs> well, it's, it is, it's, new, uh, it's, it's NPR, basically, so we have to use the fancy words. Yes. Oh, got it. Okay. Thank you. Yes. And um, none of the swear words. <laughs> none of the swear okay, words. Okay, got it. Okay, got it. Okay. Clocking that, clocking that. You got it. Um, it's, it's, well, it's not the first collegiate <laughs> ah. performance of the play. This has been done, you know, at different campuses and colleges um but it's the first time that i'm directing a collegiate version of the version of the play um so it's the first time that i'm i'm um coming along with this script because otherwise i've just you know it's been like do the script and other people have directed it let go um, and let go <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um so that's been exciting to um to join it and what made me do it was definitely the um you know I was I was being invited to to come back to Smith to direct something and at first it was the invitation to like devise something original and um and it it was like whoa that's a lot of work um (laughs) here's here's work that already exists and my hit later to the great american theater was honestly the last um piece that i ever thought smith would ever do of mine ever on earth um and i had actually wanted to do the infinite love party which was a which is still a a um an intentional barefoot potluck dinner dance party and sleepover for queer trans folks of color and their allies. And we couldn't do it because COVID because uh. um, it's definitely like what a super spreader event. Right. Um, and so hate letter. Um, I mean, by a miracle of whatever it was, or maybe it was a simple conversation. I have no idea how this play ended up here. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I'm so happy you know it's what? here. That, that's entirely a valid answer. You did, especially speaking of COVID, you did this play 
during the pandemic over Zoom. And mm-hmm. I saw a lot more like performance based art playing with Zoom as a medium for their pieces. How did that affect this particular piece when you would perform it streaming? Yeah. Um, it was cool. It was neat. I mean, it you know, to go from like the first showing of it in New York at it, in public at the public, lol, um, you know, in real life <laughs> with people in person to then <laughs> um, the the transfer to Zoom. Um, it was cool. It was just like a very different way of gathering, um, obviously, and to throw like a virtual party and to be alone, but together. Um, and I appreciated the... Um, I guess challenge is kind of the like cold word to use, <laughs> but I appreciated the um, invitation to invite people into it. Um, so I, I, I look at that moment. I look at that like chapter of doing hate letter virtually with, with a lot of fondness and like warmth and, it gave, really gave me something awesome <laughs> to do over March. Cool, cool. <laughs> well, Daphne's doing it in person now, so. Daphne mm-hmm. Huang Spencer's current student at Smith. Current student at Smith. What's it like being a part of this particular piece? Um, it's honestly been a really amazing experience. Um, this is actually one of my first experiences doing like a big theater production. I, I did pit orchestra in high school, but that was about it. Um, so being able to work with this cast, all of whom are amazing and build this community has been just so incredible. I remember when um, the theater part, the theater department initially sent out the script for my hate letter along with the casting call. So I read through the script and I was like, this, this is incredible. This is so many things that I never knew that I needed in life. And then to go through the process and meet Diana and really get to know them and understand the true depth of the play, of which I think I'm still plumbing, has just been an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm very glad we get to do it in person. Are there particular parts of the script, which I also read, the script is kind of amazing. Yeah. Are there pieces of it that particularly resonate with you, Daphne? Um, there, there are so many different parts. One of my, my personal favorites is uh, there is a theater troupe scene and the play reading bit. And I love it not only because uh, my castmates are absolutely amazing in it, but um, Martha, who I uh, sit next to in that part, we both love it. So we get to look uh, at each other and like we get hyped like as they're getting ready to go on. And that's just a wonderful moment of community. Um, and then in the very last bit when it is myself and... Toby, who plays the physical embodiment of theater, we have a lot of tough conversations where I kind of get to yell at theater as an industry and say that there are so many things that have kind of made you really crappy throughout your entire history, and yet we aren't really seeing change, and that sucks, and please change. And if you aren't going to, then I and you know so many other artists like are going to take care of ourselves and are going to leave. It is called My Hate Letter to the Great American Theater, and I do love yes. the, the, the Prince version of the spelling of hate with the letter H-A yes. uh, and then the G-R number eight. 
Um, and we're speaking with the writer and director, Diana O, oh, and current Smith student, Daphne Huang Spencer. And it, it's called a, a hate letter to the great American theater. And the, if you go through it, there are characters like beautiful white female, successful old white man. And then there are like POC moderator. And it's like a diversity, inclusion and equity um, theater piece gone all over the place. And my question, I guess, for you first, Diana, you you went to Smith yourself. Mm hmm. Um, did you, how much of this felt uh, true to your experience as a playwright at Smith? And, and when was that? And then I'll, I'll ask Daphne the same question as a current student at Smith. Oh, my gosh. Lowell. Um, <laughs> well, you went to Smith Lowell. Oh, not Lowell. Oh LOL. My, oh, I see. Lowell. No, yeah, right. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> old. Yeah. Um, LOL mass. Um, I'll, I'd, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Where do I begin? I don't know if I found playwriting at Smith. Um, I definitely I think I was closeted um, in many ways at Smith at the time. Um, I think I found writing, you know, post Smith. I think Smith was actually my like liberation zone because that was the first place I found um, liberation in my underwear. Quite literally, it was like the safest place I felt huh. running around in my underwear. And that was definitely incorporated in my art in, um, <laughs> in New York City. In this particular piece of art. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't really dive into writing until um, my time in New York. And, um, I, you know, even with the with the term playwright, it's it's always kind of been a term that I've been uncomfortable with because it's it's I don't know, like, I don't even know if I'm writing plays. It's just I'm like making things <laughs> and like like, you know, when you read the script for a hate letter, it's always a Google Doc. It's always something that I'm I want folks to be able to um bespoke it to their own cast or experience or whatever you know i also love like, that at the top of the script you've written um i want to die and have someone find this so it's, <laughs> 10, it's, it's a script written with that kind of perspective like it may or may not yeah. ever be a real thing somebody hopefully will find this when i'm dead <laughs> definitely yeah. yeah yeah it's like a, as much of it is as it is like an art piece it's a journal entry you know it's like mm. <clears throat> um and my will, my will is also a Google Doc, you know, <laughs> I, just, I kind of believe in this like transient way of living life. Um, and that's probably because I have commitment issues and that's a whole other, we can do another interview on that. Um, That'll be the next so, not play play. Exactly. Well, what about you? What about you, Daphne? Um, at Smith right now, a lot of what goes on in here is like a, an attempt to be diverse and inclusive, but goes horribly wrong and legacy students and white people who get to go to Yale because they are white and their parents were white. Mm. Do you experience this currently as a student at Smith? Does this play feel real to you in your experience at Smith right now? A hundred percent. I think um, in my my experience is also a little bit different. I think as someone who is, is mixed race, I'm Taiwanese on my mother's side and my, my father is like English accent European. Um, so being at Smith, I have found a lot of different communities in a lot of different ways that have helped me grow. I'm a part of an organization, Pan Asians in Action. And through there, I've been able to really grow and find my footing as an Asian American and understanding my cultural, my like culture and my identity and my heritage and what that means and how I move forward with it. But at the same time, being able to recognize that Smith, while it is progressive in many ways, was and still is a predominantly white institution and that does have like that that does affect um 
the overall culture, I think, both with students and faculty and administration. I think it's something that especially students are conscious of and actively try to make efforts towards. Um, there was an open forum, I think, just yesterday on implementing mandatory uh, like race education classes at, at Smith. So hopefully we will see that uh, gaining traction. But it, it's definitely a place that I feel fosters a lot of conversation around identity, around privilege, around who you are and what your place is in the world, and if that means anything, what it means. Um, yeah. <laughs> that actually just, segues perfectly into a question I had about you using white people in this particular piece, because they're almost a specific tool that comes in and sometimes is used to to help each other out and off the stage as as a group of, of white people come and escort uh, a crying white woman away. But like, how did you decide when and where to use like which white people to use and when? Because like Shakespeare comes in and there's a there's a, a farmer and the personification of theater itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm guessing that's a question for Oh, for me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, really, it, it's it's it is that honest and visceral and intuitive of uh, of a piece where it, it it to go back to that question of like, did I experience it at, at Smith? And I don't know if I really had the language at during my time at Smith to know what was going on. And it wasn't until I was out there <laughs> in the trenches in the field um, as a professional, you know, at these professional um places and theaters and residencies that I really started to see um, the culture of the room. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that I was the diversity hire. And at the same time, it felt like there wasn't really support for me to be there. You know, it was so like, I just felt so on my own to fight my own battles. So it was kind of this like, oh my God, in a world where I wasn't fighting my own battles, what would I want? I would want Shakespeare to get up there and say, please stop paying attention to me. You know, I would want <laughs> like, you know, the white That's... folks to come in and like usher the, you know, crying white artistic director who is literally crying in front of me about how uncomfortable she is. You know, these like very real moments um, that are, happening that are like when you kind of zoom out you're able to laugh at it because it is pretty funny because life is funny um <laughs> perfect uh yeah yeah I mean they're just they're just when you think about it they're just like real moments that happen all the time and I and I I'm enjoying the experience of doing it in front of an audience that knows like the white folks who knows who know that they can laugh at themselves and um and also performing it at a time um, where we we need to confront, you know, yeah. where it's like we're past the point of just talking about it and saying, oh, this is a problem. Well, what are we going to actually do about it? And that's, what, I, that's what's exciting about bringing it back to the students' 
particularly now because they're so progressive, they're so outspoken, and they're not afraid to actually take action. Perfect. Contemporary artist and musician Diana O oh is returning to Smith to direct their new play extravaganza that satirizes the great American theater, My Hate Letter to the Great American Theater, and Daphne Huang Spencer, who you can see performing in the theater show itself. Thank you for joining us. My Hate Letter contains strong language, slang, queer space, and hot joy tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday at the Haley Flanagan Theater at Smith. Up next, The Mailbag. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I am Khalees. Let's read from The Mailbag. Subject, love the 413 and your show. It's great to hear a local show that highlights the news and happenings of this fabulous part of Massachusetts and its re relationship to the rest of the state. As a longtime listener contributor to NEPM, I'm excited for more local programming. Keep it coming. Thanks, Monty and Khalees and Cahill from Bernardston, Mass. We don't even know Ann Cahill. I so know. So that feels good when Thanks, letters like Anne. that come in. You can email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or send us a text anytime at 800-639-9120. Tomorrow on the show... Singer-songwriter from Florence, Peter Mulvey, performing at the John Prine Tribute at the Academy of Music as part of the Back Porch Festival in Northampton. Uh, he posted on Facebook yesterday, I was at the rehearsal last night, and people, this is going to be beautiful. Been too long since I sang with Chris Delmerst. And come to the AOM Theater on Friday and bring Kleenex. John Prine was not scared of saying true things, and true things make you cry. <laughs> Scientists shooting darts at polar bear butts from helicopters, counting the cutest seals on the planet, and a race against time on an Alaskan volcano with the Greenfield-based Tumble Podcast. That's also tomorrow. And introducing the Wine Thunderdome. Radio Wine Tasting, tomorrow with the wine snobs at State Street. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Glad Machine, Maldivisa, the Gas Jay Giles fan. <laughs> Gaslight Tinkers. <laughs> Our director is Tony Dunn. We await your return from the Plague House. Our engineer is Betsy Cordes, board gymnast extraordinaire and brand new Glad Machine fan. Our technical team is Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Punk Rock Dubay. Email us at fab413 at nepm.org or text us 800-639-9120. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.